Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. As I mentioned earlier, this past week we watched in sadness as our country really revealed its hurt and its pain over racial tension. And I think part of it had to do with the fact that they've also been held up in a house for the past two months, and so they probably just wanted to get out. And so some the emotions were heightened even more so because of all of that. Our hearts were broken as we saw our society unravel as it approached the brink of full anarchy in, in Raleigh and New York City and Minneapolis. Our spirit groans as we see men like retired police officer police captain actually david dorn fatally shot as he was just responding to a uh, break-in at a local pawn shop where he lived we experienced wide range of emotions and landmarks of our nation like the saint john church in washington dc were vandalized and set on fire by both those that were hurting as well as those that were taking advantage of those that were hurting in order to push their own agenda our spirit groans and we cry out will this ever end we cry (laughs) is there any hope we plead. In any heart-wrenching situation, people are always united by that word, and that word is hope. Malala Yousafzai, if I can repaint, uh, say her name right, has anybody ever heard of her? Okay, a couple of you. She's better known as Malala. She was born on July 12, 1997 in Pakistan. We all understand that living underneath that severe oppression of Pakistan, women did not, they do not have very many rights. And she understood the importance of women gaining education, receiving education, just as as important as it is for men to be able to do so. And so what she began to do at a very young age, she began to peacefully protest against her government, really fighting for the rights of education for women in her country of Pakistan. She became the leading activist for female education in Pakistan and the, the youngest Nobel Peace Prize laureate uh, to ever live. Even after her assassination attempt, while well, her and two other girls were shot by the Taliban gunmen after they were finished taking an exam, she kept persisting and she kept pursuing. She kept fighting all to bring hope to the women in Pakistan. And we know her to be one of the most famous women that ever came out of Pakistan. She fought for the rights of women to be able to have that education. As Christians, we know that there is a hope at the end of all of this, but yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we still find ourselves struggling, often. Struggling over this this struggle of sin, struggling over this this feeling of anxiety and worry in the midst of our world. We find ourselves frustrated over our own sinful battle. But even in the midst of all of this, this morning, we find hope. So if you haven't done so, Romans chapter 8 is what we're going to be focusing on here this morning, specifically in verses um, 18 down to verse 30. I should probably get there as well. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, just a way of review to the Church of Rome, on this subject of the gospel. That was his whole purpose of writing this entire book, was to introduce the gospel as well as introduce himself. This is the first doctrinal uh, work written on the gospel, the subject of the gospel. And so we see the first part, portion of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, talking about man's need for the gospel based upon God's judgment upon sinful mankind. 
And then hope is introduced in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, until the end of chapter 5, on this subject of what Jesus Christ has done for us. In Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, we see this subject of sanctification, which is us becoming more like Christ. Christians becoming more like Christ. And Romans chapter 8 is really the climax of this subject of sanctification. Romans chapter 8 is hailed to be by many, the greatest chapter in all of the Bible because of the hope that it delivers to mankind. So far, we've discovered two of the four freedoms we find in Romans chapter 8 as a result of our salvation. The first, we looked at the freedom of condemnation that we have. We're no longer underneath the penalty of sin. And then we also observed last week the freedom of defeat that we... we We are free to overcome the power of sin. Although we won't be perfect on this side of creation, this side of eternity, I should say. But we do have the power to overcome the sinful struggle because of the power of the Holy Spirit. The third section of Romans chapter 8 really deals with this tension that exists between our future glory and the current suffering that we are experiencing at this present life. We observed last week towards the end of the message in Romans chapter 8 verse 17. You can look there. As Christians, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says, If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The way, the words that Paul really uses in verse 17 is an indication that the proof of a person being a genuine follower of Christ is revealed in his suffering as a Christian. The question that I asked last week is, how much do you want to be? How much do you truly desire to be like Christ? Because you will suffer. We will suffer as we take a stand for Christ. Because Jesus suffered and was persecuted, we too as Christians will suffer and will experience persecution because of our identification as Christ followers. And if we're honest, experiencing suffering is never fun. It is not something that we look forward to. We rejoice because God is glorified in it, but it is certainly not something that we enjoy. So Paul, understanding this discouragement that Christians feel and taking this stand for God gives us hope in verses 18 through 30 of Romans chapter 8. And so if you can, if you could stand with me, Romans chapter 8, we're going to read verses 18 through 30 uh, this morning. Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of hope who hath subjected the same hope in us. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, but not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for this adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we have with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is in the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God 
To them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. In this section, Paul deals with a very real problem that we experience as Christians, and that is the problem of pain and suffering. There is perhaps no better time for a passage like this in our lifetime than our current time here today. This morning, we're going to answer questions like this. How do we find hope in the midst of riots and racial tension? How do we find hope in the midst of a pandemic? How do we find hope as Christians when we are mocked and ridiculed for our faith? How do we find hope when we live in a world that is completely upside down? In our passage this morning, Paul gives us hope. A hope that we have as Christians in the face of discouragement and opposition. And my prayer is that through this passage this morning, we can be reminded as Christians that even in the midst of our most discouraging moments, we have hope. The title of the message this morning is Freedom from Discouragement. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, before we go any further, we do have to make this clear. This passage does not apply to those that are not followers of Christ, to those that are not Christians. It only applies to Christians. Paul refers to them also as the elect of God. If a person is not a genuine follower of Christ, then there is no hope for any situation outside of Jesus Christ. Satan knows this well, which is why the name of Jesus brings out so much emotion among so many different people. Satan does not mind if people are good people or moral people or church-going people because none of those things will get a person into heaven. Vody Bachman, a dean of theology at the African Christian University in Zambia, states this. He says, hell will be filled with people who didn't smoke, who didn't cuss, who may have even been baptized. Why? Because none of those things makes a person a Christian. If the, in the book, uh, Crisis Christianity, I shared this a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night Bible study. Michael Horton asked the question, what would happen if Satan really took over the control of cities? And in response, uh, really to what Donald Gray Barhouse, Barnhouse, his scenario, of his, his description, and, and he says this. If Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every single Sunday. But here's the key. Christ would not be preached. Christ would not be preached. The bottom line is that Satan has no problem with moralistic therapeutic deism. He has no problem with that. As long as Christ is not preached, Satan is happy. Christ is the only hope. He's the only answer when it comes to fixing the system. In the context of Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30, Paul is speaking to here to Christians. So unless a person has repented of their sin and believed in Christ and Christ alone as their Savior, then this passage does not apply. A person cannot have hope in every life situation unless he first has hope in Christ. And so now that we have that out of the way, we can jump into it. Paul starts off this section here of encouragement by addressing Really, the magnificence of the glory that we will experience in the future. Look down at verse 18. Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It is easy, in fact, it is human nature to spend most of our time focusing on the negative. And some of you may have personalities that allow you to do that more than others. 
my wife likes to say, I'm more of a pessimistic person now, talking about herself. And so she, so, so that might be easier for some to focus more on that. But the more we focus on the negative, the more depressed we become. Paul's response in verse 18 is to remind the Christians that the glory that will be revealed in us in the future far outweighs the suffering that we experience now, no matter how bad it is. For the Christian, the glory ahead is not only greater than our present suffering. Paul says that it is much greater, much greater. In essence, Paul says that our pain and suffering now is no comparison to the joy that we will receive and experience in the future. Now, the suffering that we experience is not limited to simple persecution. The suffering that we experience, and Paul mentions in verse 18, goes beyond persecution. It includes sicknesses. It includes injuries, surgeries that we have to take care of regarding our body, natural disasters, financial losses, hunger, poverty, and death. All of this is the result of a fallen world. And because of the redemption of both creation and Christians... They're not, and the fact that we are, not, we are not fully glorified at this particular time, we experience heartache. So in the following verses, Paul describes both the groan of creation and the groan of believers because of this sin. He follows up with the hope that we have in Christ. And so the first thing we're going to look at here this morning is the groan of creation. Look at verse 19. He says, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. The phrase earnest expectation is, is only used here in Philippians, as well as Philippians chapter 1 verse 20. It means to watch with the head erect or outstretched. If you think about somebody that's anxiously watching for something coming in the future, that's the, the vision that Paul is giving here regarding creation. He's personifying creation as watching with this longing anticipation for their full glory. The other day I was taking Kona on a trip. And Kona knows that whenever the blue leash comes out, she's getting ready to go on a trip or getting ready to go on a walk. And so I didn't mean to be mean, but it ended up, as I thought about it, was kind of mean. I took the leash out and, and she was at our back door. The, the curtains were drawn and so she could see inside. And I set the leash down on the carpet or on the, the rug there and Kona saw it. And as soon as she saw it, she lost her mind. She's going all over the deck. And I'm like, Kona, what are you doing? And she's standing there whining, looking through the window. And I realized, oh, I laid the leash there. Maybe I should move that, which didn't make anything any better because she knew it was there. So I took her out. But what was going on with her is Kona knew what was getting ready to happen. And so she longed and she anticipated for that leash. What Paul says here regarding creation is that creation is on its tiptoes, longing for the anticipation of their full glory. Now, we have to be clear here. The creation that Paul is speaking of here is not talking about humanity. It's talking about physical creation outside of humanity. And it is longing. What does that mean? The word manifestation means revealing or unveiling. The sons of God here in this passage here refers to God's family of glorified humanity. Those glorified through faith in Christ, which would be us as Christians. So what Paul says in verse 19 is that all of creation except for humanity is anxiously waiting for the return of Christ so that all of creation can be glorified. So if creation is anxiously waiting to be glorified then that must mean that creation itself has a problem now. Look at verse 20. Paul states, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the hope or the same in hope. 
When we typically think of sin, we think of the sin of Adam and Eve affecting just the human race. But Paul says that mankind's sin was not limited to mankind only, but to all of creation. When Paul says that creation was made subject to vanity, he refers to this inability for creation to completely fulfill God's original purpose. The meaning of the word vanity here means empty. Within this context, Paul describes creation as being in a decaying and a perishable condition. We see this, I mean, every single day. Uh, Plants are dying, and those of you that are into plants, you you, you witness that. And we had somebody that was breathing life into a plant uh, earlier today. That's all part of the fallen world that we live in. It doesn't live forever. Things die off. They decay. And that's part of what he's talking about here in his creation. But Paul concludes in verse 20 with two words, in hope. Paul says that creation groans for the day that it will be glorified. It groans for the day that it will receive its full redemption. For the day when God's plan and creation will be completely fulfilled, Paul says that creation waits in hope. In hope for what? Look at verse 21. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Creation waits in hope because it too will be removed from this bondage of decay and corruption and fully redeemed through the glorification of God. It's comforting in the fact that we ourselves as believers aren't the only ones that groan for the coming of the Lord. Creation itself groans. Paul continues in verse 22. It says, For the, we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth and pain together until now. Through this one statement, Paul describes the current status of creation at this current moment. We understand that all the way back from the Garden of Eden, God's original creation was made in absolute splendor and beauty. Creation was made to reflect the beauty and the goodness and the holiness of God. But because of sin, God's original purpose for creation was altered. God's plan wasn't altered. His original purpose for creation was altered. Creation is no longer redeemed. Therefore, creation no longer fulfills its complete purpose. Somebody describes it this way. Nature, with its melancholy charm, resembles a bride who at the very moment when she was fully attired for marriage saw the bridegroom die. She still stands with her fresh crown and her bridal dress, but her eyes are full of tears. As Paul explains in these verses, God has tied the sanctification of believers together with the perfection of the created order so that creation will only be set free from the bondage of decay and corruption when God's children receive their full glorification and redemption, which happens at the return of Christ. It is the sin committed by humans that brought about earthquakes and volcanoes and diseases, but it is the full glorification of the believers through the power of Jesus Christ that will restore the untarnished beauty and perfect order of all creation. But until that time, until that moment, Paul says that creation groans in anticipation. Paul then shifts from speaking on the groan of creation to speaking to the groan of believers in verses 23 through 25. Second point we see here this morning is this groan of believers. Look at verse 23. Paul says, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for this adoption to wit the redemption of our body just as creation groans in this anticipation of their full glorification we too as believers groan from the day that we will be removed from this presence of sin here on earth and i i can 
pretty much guarantee that every single believer in this room has groaned, has been so burdened by this sin that we find ourselves in and this sin that we find ourselves surrounded in that we've uttered words like, Jesus, just come quickly. Just come quickly. Paul describes Christians as having this first fruits of the Spirit. This is in reference to the fruits of the Spirit that's given to us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. We know those to be love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. These fruits of the Spirit characterize the lies that are filled with or have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. It's fruits of the Spirit. We are going to produce fruit that is evidence of our uh, inward man. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, he's talking about the first fruits here. He's speaking to this partial redemption that we experience through the redemption of the Spirit that gives a taste of what we will experience when we become fully redeemed. We understand that our spirit is redeemed, but our bodies are not. Because we've been talking about this entire study here that we are still within this humanness state, this decaying body state. We still have sin. Many of you know that we have a garden at home. My wife does a fantastic job in taking care of that garden. And uh, some of you are benefiting from that here today uh, through, I think, kale and lettuce. But there's, there's a few plants in our garden right now that are flowering. The flowering is evidence. It is a foreshadowing of the fruit that is going to happen. We have uh, a couple of squash plants right now. And my wife was telling me the other day that Emerson was inside the garden. And we have this tiny little baby squash. It's like that big. Clearly not anywhere near to be picked. And Emerson almost picked it. And my wife's like, no, 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 don't do that. But outside of that little baby squash, there's a few flowers that are there. And beans that are showing evidence of foreshadowing of fruit that's going to come. This first fruits here that Paul is talking about, that is a foreshadowing of the full glory that we will receive in heaven. We get a taste of these first fruits, which makes us only groan even longer. The first line of Fanny Crosby's song, Blessed Assurance, says, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. We as Christians taste the blessings of heaven through the ministry of the Spirit. When Paul says that we are waiting for the adoption, he's speaking of our redeemed body. When we become followers of Christ, our spirit was adopted into this family of God, but yet our body still remains unredeemed. But Paul says that we patiently wait in hope. Look at verse 24. For we are saved by hope. The word hope does not speak of uncertainty, I hope that I make it home safely, or I hope that um, football season starts in September. It is to speak of that uncertainty. The believer's ultimate destiny is to share in the very glory of God and the hope that will be realized. In this particular passage here, it does not speak of uncertainty, but rather a certainty that has not yet been realized fully. That is the hope that we are experiencing here. We have hope because Jesus Christ secures it. We are certain in our salvation that one day we will share in the very same full glory of God. Paul continues. He says, but hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth. Why doth he yet hope for? 
But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Real hope, the type of hope that Paul speaks to here, combines a radical trust in God with a candid admission that we don't know the full details of our own future. We know what the Bible tells us, but we don't fully know exactly what it's going to be like. What we do know, however, outweighs what we do not. Present troubles are manageable when living in hope of our future redemption. But since we have not realized the full glorification of our redemption state that awaits us, we groan in this anticipation. Much like a new mom experiences the pain of labor, we groan within ourselves as patiently waiting for our full redemption. Somebody uh, shared with me this week and and. I've had the blessing of never having kidney stones, but somebody, uh, a doctor, I guess, has told men that that is equivalent to um, a woman going through labor. But the difference is a woman benefits after that process. They get to hold that baby. Uh, Men that have kidney stones, there's no benefit. Here, when Paul uses this to really explain this, this labor pain here, we groan in anticipation that someday we will be fully glorified, but there is an ultimate benefit to all of those. And that is this full glorified state. This anticipation is colored in hope. Hope in the realization that because of our hope in Christ, we will experience the full and complete redemption of our bodies. Because we live in a fallen and sin-cursed world, the believers groan alongside uh, creation for a full redemption. But it's not just creation and the believers that groan. Paul says that the Holy Spirit groans. It is through the groan of the Spirit we find help. Which brings us to our third point here this morning. And that is the hope of believers. The hope that we have as believers. Paul understands that as we wait patiently wait for our complete redemption. There can be many moments in our life, and maybe you've been there, where we become so discouraged that we can't even muster up the words to express to God. We become so burdened. But whatever situation we find ourselves in, we can't even muster up the words to express what we are feeling to God. And Paul says in verse 26, likewise, the spirit also helpeth our infirmities. He says, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit itself maketh interception for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. To intercede is to intervene on behalf of another. The groaning which cannot be uttered are really these divine articulations that cannot be expressed in words, but they carry profound appeals for the welfare of every believer. We, in and of ourselves, do not have the ability to communicate with God. We don't have the words to say nor the ability to understand the wisdom of God, but we gain encouragement in the fact that we, where we are inadequate, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Oswald Chambers describes it this way. He says, Jesus Christ carries on intercession for us in heaven. The Holy Spirit carries intercession for us here on earth. We know that God is not impressed with pious men who lift up articulate but empty prayers. Sometimes the most beautiful prayer to God is a simple groan. Is a simple moan. Say, God... I don't even know the words to say to you right now, but I am burdened. I am discouraged. And Paul gives us encouragement in the fact that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf and lifts those requests up before the throne of God. 
and allows us to be able to have this illumination so that we can receive the very wisdom of God. The Holy Spirit is effective in delivering to the Father our groans because the Holy Spirit knows both our hearts as well as the thoughts of the Father. Look down at verse 27. Paul states, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. So since the Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of the Father, we are dependent upon the Spirit to make this spiritual connection with God. When this happens, God illuminates His Word and speaks to our hearts so that we can be encouraged and gain wisdom to handle anything that God allows to come our way. And perhaps you've been there where you're feeling particularly discouraged and you lift up these requests to God and you don't even know what to pray, but you've shared this with others. You say, I was doing my devotions and and the Holy Spirit Spirit showed this to me. That's what's going on here. That's the description of what Paul says here. The Holy Spirit is working on our behalf to intercede our thoughts and our feelings to God. And the Holy Spirit is illuminating the truths and the wisdom to God so that we can be ministered to in our hearts and in our spirit. Looking back at verse 27, Paul says that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. What is the will of God? What is the will of God? And that is to conform to be the image of Christ. And this is where we're going to park here for the rest of the the message here this morning. The will of God is to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is a purposeful calling that brings security to all believers. Therefore, the sovereignty of God provides security for the discouraged believer. The sovereignty of God provides security for the discouraged believer. Look at verse 28. Perhaps one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. With this being one of the most famous verses in all of scripture, often it is taken out of context. We've heard somebody say, well, we know all things work together for good. That's all they say. It'll say the rest of the verse, right? They stop right there. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, but they overlook the last part. There are two things that we have to point out in this verse. First off, this verse only applies to those that are Christians. It only applies to those that are Christians. This verse does not apply to people who are not children of God. When Paul says to them who are the called or who are called, this is in reference to the followers of Christ. In verse 33, we'll look at it next week. God uses the term uh, God's elect to describe followers of Christ. And that's genuine followers. So for someone to flippantly use this verse to apply to anyone in any situation is a gross misinterpretation of the original meaning. The second thing that we have to point out is that when it comes to gaining a proper understanding of this verse is the fact that all things work together for our good, not so that we can live on easy street for the rest of our life, That's not why all things work together for good, but they work together for our good according to his purpose. His purpose and his providence, God orchestrates every single event in life, even suffering, temptation, and sin to accomplish both our temporal and eternal benefits. So as a genuine follower of Christ, what you are experiencing right now, whether it be good or whether it be bad, is ultimately working out for the good, which is according to the divine purpose of God. Look at, um, you may be asking, well, what is his divine purpose? Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of God, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The purpose of God for his elect is not our comfort. 
or our convenience, but our sanctification. It is not our comfort, our convenience, it's our sanctification. Our sanctification is this process of becoming more like Christ and being molded into the image of God. So as Christians, everything that we experience and everything that we face is ultimately for the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. And that does not always feel good. But it is not, it's, God is not interested in comfort as much as he is in your holiness. God is not as interested in your comfort as much as he is in your holiness. Comfort is temporary. Holiness is eternal. God is working in the temporary moment for the eternal benefit in each of our lives. But what really makes this so comforting to us as believers is the fact that this was not an afterthought with God. It wasn't like uh, our belief in God was a surprise to God. Our relationship with God was known by God from the very beginning. Paul says, for whom he, talking about God, did foreknow, talking about God's elect, the believers, he also did predestinate. The word predestinate means to mark out, appoint, or determine beforehand. So what Paul is saying is that from the very foundations of the earth, your purpose was known by God. God knew from the very beginning of the earth those that are predestinated to be conformed to the image of God. So everything that has occurred and will occur in your life has already been known and worked out by God from the very beginning. That ought and must bring us comfort in the sovereignty of God. Paul further drives home this point in verse 30. Moreover, whom he did for or whom he did predestinate, them he also called, whom he called, them he also justified, whom he justified, them he also glorified. Since God is sovereign and in control, all of those that he knew from the foundations of the earth that would become followers of him, he called. And those that he called, he justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. Those that he justified, he will also glorify spiritually now and the bodily, or from a body sense, at the return of Christ. Paul uses this past tense of glorified in verse 30 to express this certainty of our future full glorification. What verse 30 shows us is that God always finishes what he starts. God always finishes what he starts. The whole salvation and sanctification process is this unbroken chain. Paul says that all who are called will be glorified. This guarantees the eternal security for all believers. And this should give us tremendous assurance that no matter how hard life gets, we are children of God and no one, nothing can ever take that away from us. But yet we oftentimes find ourselves confused. We sometimes find ourselves caught up in the emotion of the current moment and we fail to remember that God is working all things out for good. Don't overlook the puzzle pieces of life as really this means of creating a bigger picture in which God is doing. If I was to have the worship team come up here this morning, uh, actually no, if I was to have just Bryce come up and Bryce play his, you don't have to do it, but just play, play his particular part. And then Tim come up and, and just play his particular part. It's going to sound weird. You could probably figure out what Bryce is playing. Probably could not figure out what Tim is playing because he's got a bass. If I had Alina just play the stomp box on the beat of the song and nothing else, probably could not figure out what was going on with Alina. And Michael sing just his particular part, the tenor lines, or you've good voice, whatever is official your line, just the tenor notes. You could understand what the song is saying, but it's not until you put everything together 
that you have the full completion of that song. And so the point I want to make here this morning is that what, what God is saying here is that everything that comes into your Christian life, and we understand that there are times in which we sin and we result in those consequences, but everything that God sovereignly allows to come into your life is ultimately for our good. And what is that good? It's according to the will of God. What is the will of God? To conform us to be like His Son in the image of Christ. So my prayer is that we are comforted with these words this morning. As we go out in that sidewalk and we see all the crazy stuff that's happening in this world, we understand that it's fallen state. We're comforted in the fact that we aren't the only ones that are groaning for in anticipation of our full glorification. The creation itself is groaning. But one day it will happen. And we trust in the fact that all things that we are experiencing in our life right now is ultimately working out for our good to conform us to be the image of Christ.